it is another fine Tuesday on the Tartar Project. Hopefully it's fine where you are, wherever you're listening to this too, on whatever day you are listening to this on. I think the English on that made sense. I hope so. Episode 26. What's up? Phil Toronto back again. Tartar Project. Today we have a guest from the restaurant industry, which as you know, or maybe you don't know and you're about to find out uh, if, if you've been listening along, I love the hospitality industry and Ariel RC has four phenomenal restaurants here in New York City. I think she is the next up and coming titan of an operator here in New York. She creates these incredible concepts. She has Ayers Champagne Parlor. She has Niche Niche. She has Tokyo Record Bar and she has Special Club. And she's just getting started. Why did I want to have Ariel on? Yes, I love her restaurants. Yes, I love her concepts. I feel like she does a phenomenal job of crafting the brand of each space and experience for a guest. It's it's really next level. You have to just enjoy a meal or event at any of her spots to just get it. You'll know within the first five minutes from when you walk in and you're greeted as if you're a long lost friend, which is incredible. It's one of my favorite things around hospitality. Yes, she creates incredible experiences in the food world, but I also really respect her approach to business and we get to highlight that a little bit and also around building a team because she actually finds phenomenal people that really help amplify the experience that lets her do a lot of the higher level thinking now, uh, which we also cover on the episode and what it's like to not necessarily be hands off because obviously, especially in the restaurant industry, everything is very hands on and it's a lot of work, long hours, but to be able to take a step back and almost be a guest in your own establishments and make the restaurants better through that lens, it's super important and she does a great job of that. But. I'll let her noodle and pontificate and talk about where she came from and and everything she's accomplished to date. And there's so much more on the way in the future, I'm sure. Without further babbling on my part, let's get to Ariel. We're live-ish. Well, this is pre-recorded, so it's already not a truthful start. But sitting here in Special Club with Ariel Arce, A, did I say your name correctly? You sure did. Nailed it. That's back on track. Fantastic. (laughs) Tartar Project, episode, I think, 25. Don't quote me. We are sitting here today because I am in love with this woman's concepts. She has four, and I'm sure that's just the start, four restaurant concepts right now in New York City. That's (laughs) Uh just like, no, yes, you're right. Don't don't want to do more. (laughs) Four right now. Uh, Air Champagne Bar. Tokyo Record Bar, Niche Niche, Special Club. Those are all four. Um, The reason that I reached out and wanted you on the podcast, we just talked about it off mic. Air Champagne Parlor was the first time that I ever realized that you could have champagne as a non-celebration. Or that every day is a celebration, you should just drink champagne. Yeah, that was like the original tagline, but... um over time, it's kind of grown into, let's just take celebration out of the narrative and just say it's fucking wine. Let's enjoy it. And it is. And it is. It's delicious. People are finally g- coming around. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Better late than never. Yeah, right. So that's amazing. Um, so with that being said, we're going to take a bunch of steps back to where did you grow up? Oh, well, I'm born and raised in Hell's Kitchen. Um, have pretty much lived there my entire life with some brief sojourns to the Midwest. Ooh. Yeah, I went to college at University of Michigan. I lived in Chicago for a couple of years, um, but born and raised New Yorker. And when you were growing up, did you give a shit about school? Um, I have led a bunch of different lives in my short life, um, but the first half of my life, I was a professional actor, Crazy. singer, dancer gymnast um, and was kind of on this trajectory to be far more talented, <laughs> use my talents differently than yeah, I do now. Yeah, different channeling. Exactly. Yeah, different channeling. Um, and I did very well in school, but it was always the extracurriculars for me. And that was the thing that was kind of going to be my focus, you know, in my future and, and college. It was less about like my grades and and my test scores, which were abysmal and more about how I was going to audition or, you know, how I was going to show myself off paper or something. 
when did you discover a love for hospitality or restaurants that you can first remember? Yeah, my uh, mom said if I was going to be an actor, I should probably learn how to wait tables. And I said, I will never in my life wait at a table. <laughs> oh, how that has changed. Yep. Yeah. Needing my words now. Um, it was pretty much, I grew up in a household of entertainment. My parents were always entertaining. They were like the bygone era of food photography. So my mom was a fashion photographer. My dad was a food photographer. And they were always entertaining clients. And I just grew up in this energy of constant entertainment. And um, we were very good at it, like as a family, a little like trio. Would you perform? I would not perform. Oh, my God. Okay, no, great. No, no. <laughs> but like, you know, I would make beverages. I would help my dad cook. Like I, my mother knew how to make a tablescape. Like we were just um, always kind of in this constant state of having people over to the house, throwing a party, entertaining clients. And so that's kind of how I came into the world of, you know, uh, hospitality, I guess. Um, but I really didn't do anything in the space until after I graduated from college and the economy had crashed and there were no jobs. And I just applied to be a bartender somewhere, like fake it till you make it kind of thing. Totally. And then fell absolutely head over heels for it and didn't really look back. And you got your first start in New York at a bar? Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, I lied in college and worked at a place called Touchdowns where I think I poured seven beers, or, <laughs> you know, and then, um, yeah, I applied to work at a catering company at 21, Amazing. um, for Sunset Terrace at Chelsea Piers. And that is my origin story <laughs> for the food and beverage industry. And what, what were you doing at Sunset Terrace? <laughs> at first, I was like making gin and tonics. And by the time I left, I had convinced them to let me run their beverage and food program. Um, I was like 21, had no clue what I was doing, but really quickly realized like I had a knack for numbers and and looking at a model and seeing where the holes were and how to creatively fix those problems. And yeah, I had too much responsibility for a person who didn't know what they were doing. And, of course. And I, but I did like the business very much. So I wanted to get some actual experience and went to work for a man named Max McCallman, who had a restaurant called Pichelin at the time and had been working, uh, starting this company called Artisanal Cheese, which was a national purveyor for. Uh, imported and domestic cheese, but mostly imported. And he was a master in wine as well, too. And I re it was really the first time I worked with somebody who had such an exceptional palate and understood how to, like, communicate taste. Um, and I think of that as kind of like my fundamental training. And he helped me get a job in Chicago, of which I, like, promptly quit, like, a day after starting. But you got the job. But I, well, you know, I've never had trouble getting jobs. Yeah, <laughs> it's more about, like, what's the right job for you? Um, and yeah, I pretty quickly after that went to work for Chef Grand Ackett's and, you know, that's kind of where my real look into what the food industry, uh, what experiential dining, what the possibilities were outside of the common model of, of food and beverage. And for the listeners that don't recognize the name of Chef Ackett's, uh, his restaurants are Alinea and he has Aviary, Aviary Next, Royster, um, they've just opened a new supper club. Uh, yeah, is a phenomenal a place <laughs> to cut your teeth, so to speak, in, sure. in the industry. If you're breaking in, um, you seem to have an amazing knack for networking and lying fine, but figuring it out once you kind of get in the door, um, which I feel like lends itself to opening for restaurants in a pretty short order from being introduced to the industry itself, yeah. which is impressive. Thank you. I think, um, you know, I think we all have a unique set of skills, partially that we come into the world with that's inside of us and things that were learned um, either through watching our family um, or, you know, through our shared experiences. And at a certain point, if you can be a little self-aware and take stock on kind of what you're good at um, and what you're not good at, um, I think you have a little bit more confidence in if you are going to fake it till you make it saying, I know that I can do X um, and I can prove that. Uh, but eventually there will be a time where 
it's going to be hard to convince somebody without actually having a proof of concept. And that was one of the biggest kind of leaps that I had to take at a certain point, which was, I know I can do this thing, but what am I going to do to prove that I can do it? And the only thing that you can do is start doing it. Um, You just build your catalog, you build your network, you ask people for favors, you humble yourself, you say yes to absolutely everything. And then all of a sudden you're not really faking it anymore because you've built experience that you can actually trust, that you know that you're not bullshitting. Totally. And what led you back to New York? Um, I'm, well, I'm you know born and raised here. So at a certain point, I did feel like Chicago had a ceiling for me. I uh, It's a smaller industry, obviously. It's a massively booming industry. But at the time, uh, there was one champagne bar. There was technically two. There was one champagne bar in Chicago, and like it didn't really need more champagne bars. That was my goal at the time, as I wanted to come back to New York and find a way to kind of accessibilize champagne. Um, and, and you, sorry to cut you off. Yeah. You wound up working at that champagne bar, and yes. that's kind of where Abs. you developed yes. your love for champagne. Yes. And it was the only thing I thought I'd ever do. I was like, oh, I found my niche. Like, I want to be a specialist in this thing. You know, it's it's not trendy. It's not cool. But it does have a season. Like, it's always going to be a product that people are going to want. It's going to be a commodity. Like, I can invest myself in this. And it definitely, for me, th- was going to be the focus of my life, was just really getting invested in the, in this region and these wines and really evangelizing them. Um and it was not until a few years later that I realized maybe I have a little bit more to offer the world. Was there a particular moment or bottle or glass that kind of light bulb in Ariel's head, champagne, this is it? Or was it just a, the mystery and kind of not understanding the whole world of it and why people liked it and For what sure. this thing was? There was both. Um, I remember like learning the beverage selection at the office, which is one of the uh, Chef Grand Ackett's properties. And they had spirits, you know, they had chartreuse that dated back to World War One. They had, you know, spirits on the bar that there's only very few bottles ever made. They had an incredible wine selection, incredible uh, beer selection. And um, as I'm starting to educate myself to really know how to sell these products, I realized like champagne was so foreign to me And also when you work in those types of environments, you're working six days a week. I mean, if you're working five days a week, that's a blessing. And on the seventh day, I would go and buy a bottle of champagne and just taste like, oh, I know I like it. Like who doesn't like champagne? By the way, there are plenty of people. Hot take. Um, But, (laughs) you know, like I was just starting to taste things and piece it all together. And eventually I was like, there's a lot that I don't know here and I'm really intrigued. I'd really like to go down this rabbit hole. Um, And people always ask me like, how did you get into it? I was like, I was a consumer. Like, I I mean, yes, I worked in the, in the business, but I just liked it. I liked it so much. I was willing to take a risk on it. And, uh, and yeah, pops was really the place that kind of helped catapult that. Kind of touches on the fake it till you make it type thing where you're just going to keep drinking it until you figure it out and you go, Really deep, figure it out, and off to the races. So you're back in New York where, well, actually, you you popped up where you still are, technically. Mm -hmm. I mean, you worked at Riddling Widow, I think, is what brought you back. uh, When I got back, I had been working at a place that does not need to be mentioned (laughs) and um, had made some really great friends there, great relationships there. And um, I got introduced to a woman named Sarah Simmons who was opening a fried chicken and champagne restaurant. It's called Birds and Bubbles. And I i mean, my life has been incredibly serendipitous and, and I believe I have a lot of luck and it was a nice thing to be connected with her at the right time. And she needed a bubbles for the birds. And it was an opportunity to explore, again, accessibilizing champagne, bringing a high low um, to New York, which is like, a place where this could actually exist and thrive. And that was a really special experience, um, getting to really kind of build that from the ground up and see what you could do with this product and like getting my name out in New York as this young girl on the Lower East Side in Chinatown who's buying up all the champagne, like what's her deal, you know? And and building that network um, 
I've always kind of seen myself on the outskirts because I didn't really come up through, first of all, the New York community. But I even working for Chef Ackett's, it's a very small, tight-knit community. And so as soon as I came to New York, I didn't really have a network. And I've always felt on the outside of it. Um, and especially working with champagne, something that's so specific, yeah. uh, you definitely like don't find yourself in a lot of social circles of right. champagne. Yeah. Um, and, but I did start building, you know, group people that around me that were like, I like champagne. You clearly know a fair amount about it. Let's hang. And, and yeah, we started to build our network from there. Um, to about two years later, um, I partnered up with Robbie DeRossi, who had opened Riddling Widow, which was a tiny, what I called shit box for champagne, <laughs> um, on McDougal Street, which eventually turned into what is now Tokyo Record Bar and uh, put airs in upstairs above it, which is my champagne bar. And underselling slightly how that came to be, you went really aggressively and you wound up buying the yeah. space from Ravi, yeah. which is incredible. And again, just going back to how you bet on yourself and you figure it out, which I think is really incredible. And I want to keep highlighting it, whether or not you do it, I'm going to keep doing it and bumping it up because it's such a badass story. Um, from the process of saying, fuck it, I'm going to buy this thing. Yeah. When did you open? Well, I basically found myself constantly in this situation where I had no control. And like, yeah, I'm a kind of alpha control personality. That's just I'm type A in that way. Um, but I kept feeling like if I am going to be in this niche and I am a person who's kind of like trying to control the narrative, I need to be able to tell that story my way. And with the project with Riddling Widow, at the end, when Robbie came to me and said, like, I'm looking to sell this business um, because he had had a restaurant above, which is where Ayers was, and um, he was ready to kind of move on, I was like, great, now I'm just in the same position again where I'm just like starting over and not in control of my own narrative and fuck it, what it, would it look like if I bought this? Um, and... I remember having a meeting with a friend and he kind of was like, here are the three things that you need to do. You need to simultaneously negotiate with Ravi. You need to simultaneously negotiate with the landlord and you need to simultaneously have your business plan so that you're coercing investors or whomever to get involved with this project and you need to do it all at once. And I remember just being like, oh, okay. Got it. Done. And so there's a there is a constant through line in this process where you are betting, yes, you're hedging your bet on yourself, but you're also pulling some strings of different moving parts all at the same time in the hope that they're going to come together at the right time right. and <laughs> you're, and it's going to work. And so, you know, that process actually went very quickly. Um, I think it was about two months. We, we, I think we started having the conversation in December. I think we probably signed deals mid-February. I had the space in March, built the space from March and April and opened in June. It was crazy. That's so crazy. I signed my paperwork in Champagne, which <laughs> just felt like a perfect Oh, of course. Omen. It's like way better than blood too, much cleaner. Much safer. <laughs> no, physically in champagne. Oh, yes. While no. drinking champagne. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. No, that's perfect. Yeah. No, I just like dip my quill pen into the champagne and sign the contract. only fountain pen that does champagne in New York City, might I add. That. That's a real, that's, that's a real good one. Really <laughs> Table that one for later. And this, this is June 2017 at this yes. point, right? And then Tokyo Record Bar opened like shortly after that too. Yeah, we were... Airs opened by night, building Tokyo Record Bar by day. Very quickly realized we could not build Tokyo Record Bar by day because it would disrupt our service at night. So we pretty much, my dad built Tokyo Record Bar in five days by building it on Sundays. Wow. And then we opened end of the summer in August. That's amazing. Yeah, it was crazy. <laughs> so cool and crazy. Yeah, and all the things. And the kind of stuff like, you know, I'm, I'm still so small time. Like 
speaking to you today, no, but truly like where we just figure shit out. And I don't know if I'm ever not going to be able to build businesses that way because I think for things to be whatever version of successful you want them to be, you need to really know how to have the dialogue in every arena. Like I want to be able to talk my numbers because I believe in those numbers because I've spent the time thinking about them. And I also want to be able to like talk to my electrician. I want to know how to fix my refrigerators. And like, I want to know in this 150 year old building that we took over that I have no control over, like if there's going to be a flood in our basement, which like that has definitely happened, like how I'm going to deal with that. And that whole process of building that taught me those things I got to do them with my dad, which, you know, he's my renaissance man partner. And um, it just makes you super connected to your concepts so that when you open, you really, really, really feel connected to it. And you really want to see it succeed. It's your blood, sweat and tears. Yeah. Like truly. Truly. And, you know, down the road, like as you grow your career and opportunities present themselves, you have the ability to lose that. And you can just hire a general contractor and you can hire a designer and which is what most people do. We're the weird anomaly that doesn't do that. But, you know, you can pay a lot of money to a design firm and you can do all that stuff and you start losing your connection to it. And I'm scared of that very much. Um, so, yeah, I think in some respects, like I'll continue to maybe do some big projects, but like with a small time DIY mentality. Well, you can always speak to it, just like you said. And I think that across a, a few of the more successful folks that have been on this podcast that I've been lucky enough to have, they, they, they relay that as well, where it's like, get in the weeds. I mean, what better way to understand your business than to actually work at your business? And I know you definitely were not shy of that throughout building, but you would work shifts and you'd like, Oh yeah. You would be on the schedule. (laughs) I mean, I still do. I, we only recently like within the most recent months have like agreed as a company that it does not make sense for me to have a shift or a shifted day. Um, and that's a big change for me. Um, kind of weird, kind of scary ish, but also a little bit freeing maybe. Yeah. All of that. And also it's like an immense amount of guilt. Like it's a weird thing to own your businesses and like not kill yourself and like how you yeah. process that, that's yep. really hard. Um, it's a big change, but it's amazing because now I, I mean, I do still work on the floor in the restaurants because that's what I do and I'm good at it and I like to do it. But um, yeah, it's a big change to come in more as like a guest and to be the person that comes in here and like gets to be in love with the people that work here and enjoy it and leave a really fat tip and like people, my team be happy when I come in, totally. <laughs> you know, like, oh, she's back. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it's, um, it's a really new change for me, but it's been really, really awesome. That's so fun that I, I want to go two different directions. We're going to start actually, uh, on the hiring side because mm-hmm. what I found as a consumer and a guest you do a phenomenal job with the people that you select to work in your restaurants. And there's never been a time when I haven't felt like I was walking into my friend's apartment or just this homey aspect. It was sometimes, it was, oh, good to see you again. I haven't been in seven months and I'm getting a hug, like welcoming me back, which is crazy. Do you have any tips, tricks, hacks around how to A, attract those people that are so warm and, and key to the experience and how you identify them quickly? Yeah. Well, your people are like the most, like I can't emphasize more how important your people are for many, many, many reasons. But I've watched our culture come from like me and a couple people like sitting at a round table being like, what do we want the feel of this place to be? To turning into a company of almost 40 people who all kind of understand the culture. And I think that that's a word that gets bastardized a bit, culture, culture, culture. Um, But it's the thing that's the most important in our company is like, if we're going to make decisions, if we're going to do something, what do we weigh it against? 
and I know this is a question about hiring, but I think that has to be kind of the first thing that people understand when they come into your company is that they see your vision and understand how you would make decisions. And, you know, like last night we had uh, at Niche Niche, one of our uh, very own host Niche Niche, and she came into the company two years ago, like 21 years old, walking in the front door and was just like, I want to work here. And Amanda, who's our gatekeeper at Airs and, and Tokyo, was like, Ariel, we need to hire this girl. And I was like, why? And she's like, I don't know. There's just something really special about her. And once you, at the moment you meet Kristen, you feel her energy. She's incredible. And she came in as like a back server at 21 and now works in all of the properties as like the lead. She does all of our graphic design for all of our brands. Like she was just a special person. And that's not something that you can teach or mold, but I'd prefer always to hire somebody who's green, who's hungry and clearly has like a spark and a passion than hiring somebody with a great resume. So I think that that's a first thing is like, you really need to have a vision for what your place is like and the type of culture that you want to have there. And then you need to bring the right people into that. And you, in the beginning, I used to compromise that and be like, well, this person has worked at X, Y, and Z. So like, we need to have them. They're going to be amazing. And then they come in and you're like, this doesn't make sense. And it's just not a good fit. Um, And what that would make me do is question what I wanted to do. And I was like, this is my place. It should feel the way that I I wanted to feel. Right. So that was a bit of a reality check that came in around six months into the company. Um, As an aside, like something that I'm really, really proud of is we don't have turnover. Like everybody has pretty much been here from the beginning or they've been here from the beginning of when we open something and we add. We've rarely subtract. And when people leave, they leave because they like, got their dream job, like, which I very encouraging of, like, I really don't like having full-time employees and the full-time employees that we do have work only like two days in each place that they work because like burnout rate is real. You always want people to come into work and be excited to be there. And like, I I want the culture to be consistent throughout all of the spaces. So it's really helpful to have people work in multiple places because what ends up happening is someone will walk into niche niche and they'll be like, Oh my God. Hi, Austin. Who's like working the floor that night. They're like, you were at Tokyo record bar yesterday or, you know, Whenever. actually we do Hopefully, have people yeah. <laughs> who come like two days in a row, but they'll be like, you were at Tokyo record bar last month. You taught me so much about sake. I had the best time. And then all of a sudden, like, there's this network that's happening within our own company of a fluidity. And the thing that I love the most about our spaces is people always say they have such like individual personalities, but the through line is the people. And I like people with personalities and I like nice people. You can't teach niceness. And in New York city, like where one, I think dining can get really homogenous and you know, you don't really feel the soul. You don't feel the authenticity of the space. Um, when you have people who are individual, unique personalities and they get to thrive, one, that's at the tone. And then after that, you are able to kind of put those people together and make the energy of your space bigger than you could have ever wanted it to be. And fostering that is really important to me. It's been really an interesting challenge one, being a female operator, two, a female operator in this modern day of dining, and three, what it means to create a restaurant where the customer is not always right. Because when you say that the customer is always right, it means that you diminish the people that are working in the restaurant and saying, this person, because they're paying, is more meaningful than you, the person that works in the place and generates the revenue. And we just don't believe that because most of the time a customer isn't right. And most of the time a customer is a fucking asshole. And like, how do you deal with that delicately and allow the people that work in that space to have ownership of dealing with those situations and not lose themselves in it and feel respected and feel like they matter. Definitely. And so this is a long winded way to talk about like how you foster a good environment that people want to work in, that they make a really great money. And that's important. If your business is not making money, 
you can be freaking out, but like what you really should be freaking out is if your people are going to stay. And that's like the thing that keeps me up at night at times when, you know, any business fluctuates or when you're doing really, really well, or when it's a slow period, like you have to think about how you're going to take care of your people first. When they feel that they work alongside you, see your work ethic, and then know that you respect them and let them be them. That's my recipe. Yeah, I think that's incredible. I mean, the fact that you are willing to go to bat for them, support them in the fact that the customer isn't always right and that you actually care about their well-being so they're not stressed, that that's actual culture. Like, that's family shit. Like, that's great. Yeah, you become a therapist. Totally. You lose a bit of yourself because human energy is draining and, like, you are everybody's sounding board. And as we grow as a company, I get to bring more people into the fold with me who get to kind of help with that and spread that energy around so it's not all coming to me anymore. Um, that is my fucking gift to myself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because the person that I am right now is not the person that I was a year ago who was, like, totally dead, drained, burnt out, who was not the person two years ago who was bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, so excited. You know, now I'm far more of a grounded leader than I was opening almost three years ago. Um, well, you were kind of faking it then. Now you know what you're doing. So just following the trajectory, yeah, I think, my you, opinion. You, Yeah, for sure. You have to trust, trust what you want to create. Like, I think a huge problem of what happens is that people learn all this bad stuff from bad work environments and they're, they don't learn a lot of goods. Like they do learn a couple good things, but for the most part, we see the things that we don't like, but then we draw upon it in the future when we don't know what to do. And if it wasn't effective on you, why would it be effective on somebody else? And I caught myself doing that a couple of times, especially when we first opened, we were an, almost a 90% staff of women. Amazing. Very amazing. Communicating with women is different than communicating with men. And I was using all of these tactics of communication that were like from these massively male dominated, really like intense environments. And I was like, why is this not yielding the results that I want? Like, why is this so ineffective? And, you know, yeah, I'll get, say good on me for being able to step back and eva evaluate my performance and be like, why am I not doing a good job? And that was when I was like, this is my company and I want it to feel a certain way. And I'm allowed to choose that. I'm allowed to make that happen and stand up for what I believe in and what I want to experience when I come to work. Like totally. I work here every day. I want to be around people that I want to be around and feel the energy that I want to feel so that we can create great stuff. Um, yeah. I love that. The other piece that I wanted to touch upon that I think is important to highlight is your approach to actually launching a business. Mm. Um, I heard this in another podcast. I was doing research, so I didn't sound like a total idiot <laughs> when I was asking you questions. You're great. But you, you brought up that you make it a goal to open as thriftily and cheaply as possible so that you don't have to take the majority of your time open as a restaurant paying back investors and that you don't have to go over the top with decorations. Do what works, what works for the space. Um, can you talk a little bit about your approach to actually like start to finish opening when you do the model, when you're thinking about how you're going to decorate, but keeping costs under control, like wh what goes through your head and how do you approach that? Yeah. I mean, I think the first thing is you got to really check your ego. Like we see projects these days and granted there are projects that cost millions and millions of dollars and you walk into them and you see and feel it and you're like, yes, I want to buy in so hard. But I knew that I was never going to be that so and on the flip side like I do like nice things and I think that there are there are some touch points that are really important in a dining experience when you start building a model it's really important for you to think about the stuff that's a no compromise for you what are the things that are like really important that are going to make your concept uniquely yours and you shouldn't compromise on those but if you are going to have them and let's say you have a budget that you create for yourself that makes sense for building your project, where are you going to pull from other things or how are you going to do something uniquely thriftly to you um, that will help you kind of stay on track? 
And I think people start going overboard and it's very easy to do that. Um, and a lot of times we spend more money because we just don't know what we're doing and we waste money on stuff. And my God, I've bought like more chairs for heirs because I didn't know how high a chair should fucking be <laughs> than I care to admit. And we used to call that place a chair graveyard because I just keep buying chairs and none of them would fit the tables. Okay. But, <laughs> but I do think like part, part of it is the fake it till you make it. I was so terrified of losing somebody's money. You have, if you're going to take someone's money, you have a responsibility. That's my opinion. We do not live in that world right now. People build startups, people build restaurants, and they're just like, I need a million dollars. And it's like, you do not need a million dollars. You know who needs a million dollars? Australia needs a million dollars right now. Like, you need $10 and figure it out. And that's, again, partially checking your ego and being like, I don't need this thing. And if I do need this thing, let me justify exactly why. So I couldn't justify that. And I was like, if someone's going to give me money to do something, I better get their money back. And I better not like strangle myself so much that during that first year, during that really pivotal time, we actually have time to grow, to find ourselves in New York you know, you see restaurants open and close, businesses open and close so fast because they don't have runway. You know, like you don't get time to develop in any way. You just have to be great. Mm-hmm. New York City isn't patient anymore, which sucks. Um, so that, those two things together were, were kind of my foundation. And I built the model for Airs in Tokyo and build pretty much every single model for everything I do thinking about it was me and like one other person doing this what's the bare minimum of what we need to do it and then like how could we scale up because nobody teaches you how to scale up everybody teaches you how to scale down because mm-hmm. most things fail so how do you start big and then if it doesn't work like you got to pivot or you got to be flexible mind you you have to be able to do both of those things and if you can't you should never go into business because you will fuck yourself sorry uh, no, no. But, um, but I think like being flexible, being willing to like evaluate and pivot when you need to, and then also like really kind of doing as little as possible so that you can grow into it is the way I approach everything. And when I projected airs in Tokyo, I had a very like nice projection for that business. I had been in that space because of Riddling Widow. I knew what was possible to do in that little tiny room that is now Tokyo Record Bar on a good night. I was like, oh, I know the numbers on a good night. We, in our first year, did a hundred times more revenue Amazing. than I thought we were going to do. That's the best surprise, by the way. <laughs> 100. Yeah. And when you are doing better than you think, that comes with its own set of problems. You have to hire more people. You have to, I mean, people are working on overdrive. You are buying more product. You need to think about storage. You need to think about how you're going to handle just like the sheer amount of people that come through your space. Like all of those things change. And again, you have to be flexible, willing to pivot. Um, got to scale up. Got to scale up. So that is kind of like my overall thought on how you start that process. Um, And then from there, you know, you really have to do the work on understanding your business. And I think people like don't love that, that advice because it sounds kind of like so blanket statement. Like I'm not going to tell you how to create your (laughs) concept, but I can't tell you how to create your concept. You are your concept. If you can't, defend it if you can't explain it and and sometimes an explanation like for tokyo record bar it's a japanese record bar and people are like what and i'm like exactly and that is intriguing enough for people to be like i want to check that out that sounds cool but like niche niche 
is three sentences. You know, niche niche is a dinner party every night of the week where we invite in a different person every single night from the beverage community to curate a tasting for you. And then our chefs pair a dinner with that. So dinner changes every night of the week. The idea is to foster community, to accessibilize wine, and to do it in an environment that is just fun, feels like someone's home. That's both of those things are intriguing. One, I can talk very deeply about the other. I don't need to because it's bizarre. And right. Bizarre is cool too. Totally. Right? So you need to really know your concepts. And I've had experiences where if you did not nail that concept, like really understand it, it takes so much time to really get it to where you want it to be. That was airs. Airs started kind of as like, how do we accessibilize luxury? And now Airs is like its own beast of like the most affordable champagne slash wine bar in New York City where like it feels like a party and you're going to have a great time. And really? that's all it needs to be. Like, doesn't need more of a pitch than that. If you like champagne, that's the place to drink it. Also one of the top places to get caviar in the city. Hell yeah. Fucking love caviar. That's right. Um, and just because I was going to ask you this, what would be your overview of what Special Club is too? Because it did such a good job of describing succinctly the three other concepts. Special Club is a musical social club. So, and unfortunately, that is a hard concept for people to understand. When we think about going to see live music, we see it in two different ways. We either see it if you're lucky enough in New York City to be in a quote unquote jazz bar where you're drinking like shitty gin and tonics out of kind of like a folding table and everybody's crammed into a room and you're watching jazz. Then there's like kind of bigger venues where you are going to like see a concert. There's no food, there's no beverage. It's like you're buying some beers from a bar or whatever and you're watching a band. And then you do have a couple cool musical spaces in New York that like, incorporate what it means to eat and drink well and see live music special club is in that vein where you can come and drink insane wine and sake and cocktails and japanese beers and whatnot you can eat delicious food and you can sit with friends and talk and be in the presence of live music and again the idea here is like you can get up and dance like you can meet your neighbor like we can be talking in a booth and the people next to us can like be sitting and just enjoying watching the show. And it's really the most complicated concept, even though it's the simplest idea to me. Um, and it's been the hardest one to tell the story of because people are very intense about how they like to see music. A lot of people don't go see live music and once they're here, they really get it, but it's a little bit of a harder sell. I think Special Club is going to end up being probably one of our most incredible concepts. I think it's going to take the longest. Makes sense. Yeah. Um, a couple more things, and I'm going to let you get back to work. <laughs> uh, the concept of niche niche started out not, this isn't fully fair, but as a joke almost. Yes. And could you just talk a little bit about that? Because it's it's actually pretty funny. Like, yes, because now there's a physical restaurant that's dope. Yes. I have a tendency of like just always like thinking of silly ideas for what a restaurant could be. But then like four of them now exist. Right. So. Oops. <laughs> <laughs> oops. Um, but yeah, niche niche was like a joke that a friend of mine and I had on a trip we were in Champagne and we were saying how like niche wine is and it's always the thing I hate about the wine community is it just feels like it's really hard to penetrate it's really polarizing so I was like well what if wine is so niche it's niche niche and like my friend would always say like niche niche because of Ali G niche niche <laughs> like yes or no um, and so we just had this like constant joke where we would be like at niche niche and I'm not even going to make the jokes right now because they're so niche that it's embarrassing but it was funny to us we were like you know you would have ultramarine which is like the hardest wine to get on the market made by Michael Cruz like served in like table crafts and we'd call it table wine and like <laughs> that would be like like these jokes that are just not funny to anybody but us but we were just like we're going to create this wine bar and um, 
And through like a series of events, like a friend was getting rid of uh, one of his restaurants on the Lower East Side. It was a tiny little shoebox space. And I was like, oh my God, it'd be so fun to do niche niche here. Like we could just have these like different tastings every night. I mean, there is actually an origin story to how niche niche and this concept came together. We do not need to talk about that. (laughs) But like... I was like, okay, this is a great place where we could do this kind of like tasting and there'll be a different dinner and it'll just be like a fun educational space where we like get to accessibilize wine. And that concept like fell through and it it was disappointing, but I was given a very good piece of advice once, which is a good deal is a good deal and you should never do a bad deal. Like no matter how bad you want it, if it's not a good deal, do not do it. And this just wasn't a good deal. And this space came to me luckily where I was walking down the street I love calling for rents phone numbers because I just like a laugh at how expensive retail spaces are (laughs) and so I was like oh my god this corner is so incredible like I bet they fucking want a fortune for this place I gotta call call get this guy on the phone and he's like oh yeah there's a wine cellar in the basement like the landlord's been trying to sell rent it out for a couple years like blah 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 just come see the space i was like how much is it he's like just go see the space i'm like all right so we do have this old tunnel cellar that's from the 1800s and i see this space and i'm like this is where we're going to do niche, niche. I want this downstairs area. This would be the dining room. That would be the cellar where special club is. This would be the dining room. That would be the cellar. I want this one floor. Let's go. And they're like, no, you need to take the whole space. I was like, no, <laughs> I don't. I don't. And they were like, okay, well, you know, we really don't want to break it up and you would need to take upstairs and downstairs, um, but we're willing to negotiate. And they were like, throw out a number. And I just lowballed what I thought was fair for me to take it. And they agreed. Amazing. So all of a sudden I was like, Oh, okay, cool. I guess I'm signing this yes, lease. That's a one or two more spots. Okay. I guess we're doing that. <laughs> yeah. um, and so all of a sudden this like joke is now real <laughs> and we're almost a year old. Of course. Um, and it's just amazing to kind of see what it's become and the community you, I really appreciate you saying like you're a good networker. I actually fancy myself not a good networker. Um, I just know when you meet nice, good people, those are the people that I want to work with. Totally. So the idea behind Niche Niche was, well, let's just invite in like 40 of our favorite people who are fun and cool and we like, who have really good perspectives on wine and let's do this concept. And if we get the right people in here, it'll snowball and strategy is the one thing that I've learned over my short, but very intense career that if you do not take time to truly strategize how you are going to unravel something, you shouldn't do it. It's, it's spinning your wheels. It's unnecessary because you're going to make great stuff and you're going to put it out into the world and no one's going to see it. And that is really a disservice or a disadvantage to your concept. Totally. We definitely share the mindset that there's no such thing as a coincidence, I think. No, no, it no, It just no. doesn't exist. No. Um, Everything's a sign. You just have to be able to look at it. I agree. I totally agree with that. Um, a couple more questions before you go. These are softballs. Actually, no, this one might be hard. Favorite pizza in the city? Yeah, that's a hard one. Yeah. Um... Honestly, Emmett's across the street, and I'm not just saying this because we like work together. Emmett's has a pizza called the Hot Poppy, which is pepperoni and jalapenos on a thin pie. I think there might be some onions on it. And it comes with ranch, but I was, fuck you, take that ranch off. <laughs> and it is one of my favorite pizzas. It is not New York City pizza. I love a greasy slice. Like, Scars makes a really great slice of pizza um but like i am i love like a frank pepe's like i like like a out of the oven oozy gooey you know when fucking badia's was in philly like that's the perfect pie to me like that is incredible pizza i used to like lucali's a lot you know 
Yeah. There's a lot of good pizza. Evolving. There's Evolving a lot tastes. of yeah, a lot of pizza. Um and then I have to ask what you would drink with it. Champagne and or non-champagne, but I assume well, there's going to be a champagne answer. There's yeah, it's always champagne. Um I just it's the most versatile beverage, period. And sometimes the answer is like the fanciest one that I can get my hands on to open at that moment. And sometimes it's like a very crispy blanc de blanc that feels like drinking a beer. Um, I also like like a richer style white. We've been drinking a lot of uh, Liston Negro. We've been drinking a lot of Fiano. Um, I'm like falling so deeply into Italian Amazing. at this moment, drinking a lot of Trebbiano. Um, it feels like the party that I was invited really late to. <laughs> like everybody's like, yeah, Italian wine's great. Yeah. I'm like, what? They make this stuff here? This is crazy. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, and I like a crushable red, like a really fresh gamay or, you know, something just like really bright is really lovely. Um, yeah. Amazing. Last question. What's your life motto or mantra that you try to apply throughout if you have one? Yeah, I have two. Um, one is my my mom raising me saying, always be kind. I think it's one of the hardest things to do, especially when you work with a lot of different people and things can get frustrating and difficult. Always in some way, try to be empathetic and be kind. Um, and the other is my dad made my very first screen name for me and made a password for me because I had a Rosie the Riveter poster above my computer and my life motto has been you can do it. Hell yeah. And you're doing it. You can do it. Fucking impressive. You can. Thank you so much for taking the time today, Ariel. This is amazing. Thank you. Episode 26 in the books. It was a solid one. It was really exciting to sit down with Ariel. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you, the listener. If this is your first episode of the Tartar Project or your 26th episode of the Tartar Project, thank you, thank you, thank you so, so, so much for just giving me the time. I know that's super valuable and I really appreciate you listening and your feedback. So thank you. If you would like to just do even more than giving me a good chunk of your time, I would really appreciate it. Throw me five stars on iTunes, follow me on Spotify, subscribe, download it, tell your friends about it, tweet it, share it, tag me. I really appreciate each and everything that you do. And if you do nothing but listen, that is so valuable to me. And I really appreciate that too. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And I will see you next week.